there are loads of things going on in this chapter, and we are not going to have time to get to every single one of them. So uh, you may not be able to read it, but there is a little thing that says, if you have questions, you can go to redeemermcr.com slash ask, and you can ask any other kind of questions uh, or disagree or whatever. And it's anonymous. I don't know who you are, so you can say all sorts of mean things about me, and I wouldn't even know. Um, but uh, they get answered in the weekly emails. So uh, I think... Uh, so there's a lot of things going on in this chapter. Um, and so one of the biggest challenges for me was like, well, what does Jesus want to tell us through this chapter, through this sermon for this week as a church? I think uh, some of this is, is, well, all of it is very important, but some of this I think is particularly speaking to where we are in Charlton at the moment. I think in many ways we live in a time of spiritual chaos, like spiritual kind of a spiritual soup. In Trollton, there's so many different options of how to tap into spirituality, kind of how to be a spiritual person, what that means. Um, might be the right kind of meditation. It might be food we eat or foods that we don't eat. Or um, for others, it's politics will deliver some kind of path to making this world new. And that's just like a few of the options. There's loads of them out there. Uh, it's a super spirituality. It's all, it all gets kind of stirred together. Now, Jesus knows that we're easily misled. That's what he's telling us in this chapter. He knows that we're easily misled. And he knows that there is no end of other paths to follow other than his. So in this chaos, if left to our own devices, we're prone to drift. We'll kind of go where the most dominant force is taking us. And it's not one choice that bring us, brings us distance from God. It's a series of choices over time. And eventually we find out we're far from him. We're also in danger of sinking, though, because this has an overall effect on us, whether we realize it or not. Without God to hold us up, we will sink sooner or later. It's just kind of how it works. So in our sea of spiritual chaos, Jesus anchors us and keeps us afloat. And that's what he's telling us here in Mark 13. He stops us from drifting. He prevents us from sinking. So we're easily misled, and Jesus tells us to watch and stay on his path. So he starts in this story by giving us all sorts of ways we can be misled. He doesn't want us to drift, doesn't want us to sink. Jesus tells us to be on our guard, tells us to watch because he knows that evil comes in many ways through nationalism, through persecution, through empty spirituality, through empty religion. And how we respond to these determine whether we wander or stay on Jesus' path. So in this story, we continue the thread of how Jesus is telling us that the old kind of passing away and this new thing, his kingdom coming. Um, Jesus has already told us that the ways of the temple are going to end. He's already told us that the religious leadership, the old way of doing things is going to end because a new way is coming. And now he walks with the disciples to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was a little bit further away from the temple. And you could see the temple from the mountain, like kind of like a hill in the distance. It's a private conversation he has with a few disciples at first. But in the end, Jesus ends up addressing everybody. And some of what Jesus is talking about is directed to, like, to his immediate audience, to those people there. Like, this generation will experience these things kind of thing. Some of it is about his return in the future that they haven't experienced yet and we haven't experienced yet. But in all of this, whether our past or our future, Jesus tells us to be present and watch, to be on guard. So he tells his followers the temple's going to be destroyed. And even though Jesus previously said he was going to be killed like three separate times, they're like, yeah, that's weird. Okay, what's next? When he's like, the temple's going to be destroyed, the disciples are like, whoa, what? you got to tell us more about that. What's the deal? What's going on here? So Jesus doesn't really give them the answers that they want, as it is kind of in our spiritual lives as well. He gives us what we need. So the first thing that we need to know is that we are easily misled. And then we'll talk about how Jesus tells us to respond. So we're easily misled. 
What are some ways we can stray from King Jesus? Well, he has a few in mind. This isn't an exhaustive list. This is, here's a few obvious options of of how you're going to stray away from me. The first is nationalism, a.k.a. power. Verse 7, and if you don't have a Bible yet, we can whenever there. We're going to be in some of these verses here. Uh, Verse 7 says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, and then uh, verse 14 through 20, Jesus is talking about the war in Judea. Uh, The first and second generation of people there who Jesus is talking to, saying these words, who are going to experience these things. Now, these are about nations. They're about kingdoms. And I'm defining nationalism as uh, this, an extreme form of patriotism marked by a feeling of superiority over other countries. So nationalism has an ideology of power. It's about being the strongest. And well, if you're superior to other countries, why not take them over too while you're at it? Power is like money. It's like if you chase after it, you can never have enough. There's always a little bit more to have. And so it becomes greedy unto itself. Jesus is saying this world will never lack people seeking power. Will never lack people taking advantage of others for their own power. He tells us that in, so that in verse 7, that we won't be alarmed that we won't panic so we can be prepared. So when we come into crazy political stuff like snap elections and Brexit and all sorts of things, we shouldn't be panicking. We shouldn't be alarmed. We should be patient and calm because Jesus is in control. He's telling us here to be prepared. He's saying, if you follow me, here's what you get. Crazy stuff is going to happen through people who are more powerful than you, who can do horrible damage to you and your children's children, etc. But don't be alarmed. Don't panic. So when power comes to play, through Jesus, we'll be able to be anchored and afloat. So that's nationalism, which is basically just a form of, of seeking power. The second thing Jesus talks about is persecution. So there's also uh, persecution um, from those in places of power, like in verse 9. He says, you must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils, flogged in the synagogues. And in verse 11, he says, we're going to be arrested. We'll be brought to trial. Now, As far as I know, our government isn't flogging us for our beliefs here in our country. We aren't arrested for not sacrificing to the gods, which would be which would happen then. You'd have to have these kind of slips saying you sacrifice to the gods. If you didn't, they'd arrest you. We aren't being martyred for saying Jesus is Lord instead of saying Caesar is Lord. This is what the early church had to contend with. This is common everyday occurrence. This is what people in our day, you know, who don't live here though, live in other places of the world, still have to contend with. Like it's easy to relax our beliefs if living them out means you'll be arrested and whipped. I get that. I don't want to be arrested. I don't want to be whipped. Maybe I'll relax my beliefs a little bit. It's easy to be okay with Jesus, but not really keen. And being keen means being brought to trial. But if we aren't pressing into Jesus, if we relax our beliefs, we will drift and we'll sink. And Jesus doesn't want that for us. And Jesus doesn't say, if you follow me, you won't have to worry about this. He doesn't say, yeah, you'll go to trials, but you'll always be delivered. He doesn't say, you'll be flogged, but you'll always survive. That's just the opposite, actually. Jesus was not the best salesman. He's like, this is really difficult to follow me. And here it's going to be even worse for you in the future. But the early church was built on the blood of martyrs. It was built on that sacrifice. Mostly poor people, mostly illiterate, mostly not impressive. But they had a faith in Jesus that could withstand being beaten, being jailed, being killed. They knew less than us. They didn't, it was not about mere knowledge. Oftentimes they, they couldn't read and they maybe memorized some parts of the Bible and that's about it. They had less than us. It's not about comfort because we have a lot more comfort and we don't do as well. But they had something that we don't. 
which was really helpful for them and something that we don't have. They had a demanding context, kind of a challenging kind of persecution kind of environment. Every day for them was like the hardcore CrossFit workout. They're always, you know, on the rings or doing every kind of things that crazy CrossFit people do get injured, basically. Um, people didn't have to work on Sundays, so they'd have to get up early, squeeze in worship, and then go off to work. It wasn't like, oh, what am I going to do with my day off or days off? Like, they didn't get that, they, but they still wanted to worship together. They wanted to hear from the Word. Many were slaves and had difficult masters, and there was actually a good amount, of, a majority of early Christians were women who were married to men who weren't believers, and that was really difficult. Uh, at this time, religion commingled with social times, And so that meant Christians couldn't hang out with others because hanging out with others meant sacrificing to a God, like ritual sacrifice to a God. This was their life every single day. Our flabby muscles, like buckle under that kind of pressure, under that kind of exercise. Very few of us experience actual real persecution, but the way Jesus talks is kind of assumed. Now, we shouldn't go searching after persecution, like, oh, how can I be martyred? Like, that's not, that's a very uh, foolish way to go. But we do have to ask ourselves, like, a few questions. Because even though we don't get often, we don't, we aren't often persecuted, um, we feel like if there's a possibility of being persecuted, or if there's a possibility of being left out or rejected, or whatever, being seen as weird, or whatever the thing might be, we have to ask ourselves some questions. Do we relax our love for Jesus to avoid persecution? or to avoid potential persecution, which is really how it is. When we experience persecution, when people do make fun of us, or whatever the thing might be, how do we respond? Are we pressing into Christ? Are we pressing into his family? But there is another type of persecution that Jesus brings up, and this might be a bit closer to home. Uh, Mark uh, 13, 11 through 13 says, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not say, wait, no, that's right, uh, verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, this is persecution like the form of betrayal, familial betrayal. People will not only betray us, though, of course, they're going to betray Jesus. People coming in his name, people aren't, who aren't about his work, people in places of power, places that God alone has allowed them to be in are not using that gift of power to raise people up. They're not using that gift of power of thankfulness or honor to God. They're using that gift of power to keep others down for their own good. Jesus has been betrayed more than there are numbers to count. So when we are betrayed because of our faith, which will happen, and many of you have experienced that normally, the first feeling is that you're alone. No one gets me. I'm alone. The person who should know me the best is a person who feels like they're against me. This person who should get you isn't on your side. Just know that you aren't alone. Even if no other person can understand what it feels like, even if you can't even bring yourself to describe what that's like to share with another human being, Jesus knows. He knows better than you do because Jesus has been betrayed far more times than you do and in far worse ways. So as we are betrayed, we should be, we should be pressing into the betrayed, into Jesus. So there's claims to power through nationalism, there's persecution, and then there's also these other spiritual claims that are out there. Jesus kind of starts this in verse 6 saying, many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. Uh, Verses 20 through 22, Jesus says, uh, look, at that time, if anyone says, you look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, like, don't believe it. For false messiahs, false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So there are many spiritual claims in our world, like, though not many would maybe consider their claims to be spiritual. 
They're spiritual, but not religious claims. That's um, what Trollton is really good at. Like we're into being spiritual and not religious. It, it, it could be, it, church people can be like that too. It could be coming to an event, looking, looking for some kind of injection of an experience. Of course, getting a good experience on Sunday is a good thing, but not participating in the family of God in any other way. Like if we view the church as merely an event that happens for a few hours, that if we get something out of it, that's great. If not, then it was a failure. We're just not doing it right. That's not what this is about. The church is first a set of relationships, even deeper than the word community, which is why we use the word family. We can't see it now because we put it behind this thing. doesn't mean we don't believe it anymore. <laughs> we're still a gospel-formed family on mission. But like any family, we're going to have formal times of being of, of together, of, of eating meals together, of, of this time together. Um, but also like a, ha- a healthy family, we shouldn't have to script everything either. So people ought to be hanging out with people um, just because... We're family, and that's what we do. And we aren't in this for just for what we can get out of it, because we're a family. I'm not part of my, like, I mean, growing up, I, I'm sure I got a lot out of it growing up, because I'm just a prideful, spoiled brat most of the time, probably. But did I get a whole lot out of my, was that the reason why I was connecting to my family, was so I would get something out of it? Probably not, because actually I cared for them. I, don't, I wouldn't always get something out of my family, but I would be a part of it. There are many things I think that fit into the spiritual but not religious category. Lots of things are, I think the difficulty is lots of these things are really good, um, but they aren't enough in themselves. So things like mindfulness practices and meditation, these can be really helpful and useful, especially for calming down in the moment. They can be fantastic, but they're not enough for our souls because our souls are made for something bigger than that. And only Jesus can, Jesus can give us what we need. So there's spiritual but not religious, but there's also religious but not spiritual kind of claims, which basically is saying doing the right things makes the right person. I think maybe the best example of this is how we view um, the environment. Oftentimes, uh, so I have a, a couple friends of mine that I know when I talk with them, it's going to be a half hour of talking about how are we like, making sure we're taking care of this world that we live in, which is a great thing. It's a fantastic thing. But the worldview that we have has to be more than if I do good here, that makes me good because we can never do enough good things here to make us good. We can never actually do enough even for the environment or for whatever kind of cause that might be worthy to make us good. We can't do stuff to make ourselves new. No amount of worship gatherings, no amount of leading, no amount of prayer times, whatever you think is spiritual, um, you're just not going to do it. Only Jesus gives us that newness that we crave. Only Jesus takes our wrongs and sets us right. So, we can't work ourselves to newness, but Jesus makes us new and we get to work out of that. So the first thing is, religion tells us is we work for it. But through Jesus, what Christianity tells us is we have a gift that we've been given and out of that we get to respond to it with our lives. It's a very different kind of thing. And churches like us, we can, be most, we, we can easily fall into the religious but not kind of spiritual category of things. One of the times um, I got to visit New York City was with a high school class trip. Uh, we took a bus up there from Florida, which was like a whole story unto itself. Um, and once we arrived in the city, like we all poured out a bunch of high schoolers, you know, like can't wait to spend money on stuff in New York City. Like, oh, this is so cool. And to the, even the least trained eye, we were obviously, you know, easy targets. Almost immediately, we were sprung upon by guys in jackets selling Rolexes. Uh, these Rolexes were like $10, $15, something like that. So saying it was actually a Rolex, we knew it was a stretch. But some knockoffs are really easy to spot. In fact, they would spell Rolex wrong on the thing. Like, it's pretty bad when the knockoff that you're trying to, you can't even spell the knockoff name right. Um, now, some were a bit harder to know if they were knockoffs or not. And 
uh, we were actually wondering, oh, maybe some of them are actually stolen. Cool, can we buy those? We were kind of all about that. So it's hard to tell, if it, was it a real Rolex or was it a fake? We couldn't really, some of those we couldn't tell. But even in the best fakes, there's a telltale sign, which I didn't know until kind of recently. Um, do you know the telltale sign of a Rolex? How does, the, um, the second hand looks like it sweeps, it doesn't tick because it has lots of little mini ticks, so it looks like it sweeps around like very smoothly and very coolly, which I guess is what a Rolex is about. I don't know. Um, now, all of these watches we looked at certainly did not sweep. They were definitely tickers. Uh, Jesus is telling us, many are going to try and create knockoffs of him, but they're all cheap. They can't even spell the name right on the, on the watch face. Some are obvious, but some take a bit more investigation. But in all of it, what Jesus is telling us here in verse 13, you can experience all these things, but Jesus is saying, I'm the only king. I'm the only rightful king. I'm the only one who can truly give you the things that you want. All these other things will claim to give you that, but they're not going to do it. Eventually, your watch will break. I, I, brought, I bought some kind of watch there. I don't know if it was, a, it was a fake Rolex or a fake something. I can't even remember now, but it broke in like a year. It was like, you know, things will break. All of these other things will break other than Jesus who comes to save us. And really, like, why would we spend our time with a cheap knockoff if the real thing is being offered? The real thing is actually worth going through some of these hard times. So Jesus' path doesn't follow the religious route. It doesn't follow the spiritual route. Something altogether different. That's what makes Christianity different from everything else. Because he is someone altogether different. He's actually unique. which is impossible to find in this world. Now, you may have noticed, I haven't yet mentioned, uh, maybe steered quite clear, of uh, this term that comes up, the abomination that causes desolation, which is a great, amazing thing to say, abomination of desolation. Surely metal bands must have taken this up by now. Um, what in the world is going on here? Well, if you want to know more, uh, you can go to redeemermcr.com slash ask and ask more. Um, the, here's the quick deal with that. Basically, this is something that was going on in a Jesus's immediate and kind of in second generation, what happened was religion and nationalism combined, which is never a good thing. And the zealots, which were a specific Jewish radical political group of which one of the disciples came from, by the way, um, used the temple that they're looking at as a base of operations. And so they were using the temple as a way of uh, kind of, as a way of forcing others to bend to their political beliefs. And so people were getting murdered in the temple. The temple was like getting walked on all over the place. Um, and uh, so that's kind of like what Jesus is talking about with the abomination that causes desolation. But if you want to know more, you can ask. Um, some people have some crazy ideas of what that is. Uh, there's never a lack of crazy ideas, I guess, out there in the world. But uh, I believe that's what verse 14 is talking about, the abomination that causes desolation. But in all of this, and all these abuses of power, and all this persecution, all these spiritual claims, this is the world that we live in. And it can be chaos. How can we like fend for ourselves in this? Where will, be, where will we today be easily misled? So none of us have to worry about the temple being um, desecrated by a political group coming in and murdering people, right? That's not something that we have to deal with right now in Charlton. But we have something potentially far more damaging that we deal with every day that comes in every, day, every, every month at least, which is our paycheck. When we get paid, it's easy to think that we're self-sufficient. It's easy to think that we have our own power. It's easy for us to set up life on our own terms. We're not nationalistic. In fact, we're worse. We're individualistic. At least nationalism cares about other people. Individualism. I mean, it's pretty bad when nationalism is a step up from your own kind of worldview. That's not a good thing, being individualistic. A paycheck can be amazing. A paycheck can perform signs and miracles. Have you ever used, I remember the first time I used contactless payment coming from America, I was like, this is amazing. What kind of black magic is this? 
Money itself, of course, money is not bad in itself, but it does reveal what's going on inside of our hearts. It does have the ability to, to tell us kind of where we are. Are we easily misled by money? That's very easy for us. All of us, I think, are probably in that boat together. And if we, if knowing that, if we aren't pressing into the king, if we aren't pressing into his family, money and all these things we mentioned, they're going to tug at us and tear at us, and we will drift. That's just what happens. But Jesus is our anchor. If we don't press into him, this chaos is going to take us down. Jesus does not want that. Jesus is the one who keeps us afloat. Now, money is just one option. There's like so many other things we could talk about. But even in all of this, even in like the worst kind of possible um, bad Christian that you think you are, God takes care of his family. Jesus is, is, doesn't want us to drift, doesn't want us to drown. He tells us to watch. He tells us to be on guard. In fact, he's telling us all of this, um, even though it's just kind of a weird Jesus-y way to do this, so that we'd be encouraged, so that we would stay on his path because he knows us better than we know us. And he knows uh, the chaos that we're in better than the chaos that we know. Um, and so Jesus says we should watch to stay on his path. So it's, um, we're going to look at how we should act um, given the fact that we are easily misled um, and trying to be obedient to how Jesus is telling us to watch and to be, un- be on guard. Uh, the word that occurs most often in this passage is watch. It's this idea of, or staying awake. You know, I heard um, Kanye West talking about his recent faith. I think it was the James Corden kind of thing in the airplane. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's pretty amazing. Um, but James Corden asked Kanye, he said, Kanye, very few people are going to believe that you are now a Christian. Like, who's going to actually believe that you used to be like this, you know, misogynistic, all sorts of whatever kind of things you are, and now all of a sudden, like, you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, like, you read your Bible, what's the deal with that? And uh, how, how would you respond to people like that? And Kanye said, um, well, when you're asleep, you're asleep, right? That's it, you're just asleep. When you're awake, you're awake. I was asleep, now I'm awake. Of course it'd be a drastic difference. This idea of being awake to things that Connie was getting at, which I thought was quite profound. So when you're awake, you're awake. When you're asleep, you're asleep. So this might be the part of the sermon where we say, all right, let's stay awake. Let's do it. It's, yeah, let's rally the troops and stay awake. But that's not Christianity. That's not what we're going to do. Um, that's not how Jesus works. That's not the gospel. Being part of God's family means that he works for us first. He does it all. We get to follow. And uh, so before we even get to what we do with our lives, we get to look at what God's done. So how is Jesus keeping us from drifting? Because if it's us, up to us, we're going to drift. We're going we're gonna to sink. So how is Jesus doing it? Well, let's first talk about what God does. First, when the worst comes, when it seems like the night can't get any darker, God is coming to make things right. God sets all things right. Other messiahs and prophets are going to come. They're going to go. Nations are going to rise. Nations are going to fall. In the midst of the brokenness that we ourselves bring upon this earth, Jesus says in verse 26, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And that's described in in the two previous verses. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is cosmic confusion. Our Lord is so powerful that when he makes his appearance, even the constants of the universe get upset. And we thought other nations were powerful. That's nothing. Who, who can make stars like not know what the stars are doing? Nobody can. This is how Jesus will one day make everything sad come untrue. This is who we worship. This is who we sing to. This is who we live for. 
and we find out that he's not against us. He works for the good of the family that he's created. Verses uh, 25 to 27 says, At that time, people of, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And what's he going to do? He's going to send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from everywhere, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. The last book of the Bible helps describe some of what happens here as well. The Apostle John is writing um, about, uh, in Revelation 21, about like a holy heavenly city coming down out of heaven, coming to rest and make its home on earth. And in this city, there's no need for a sun because God's glory doesn't need any extra illumination. Jesus taught us to pray for this. This is what the Lord's prayer is about. He says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we say in Manchester as in heaven. It's, we're joining Jesus and praying for, the, for this to happen. And God told Mark and John and lots of other people that one day Manchester will reflect heaven. Can you imagine? What does that mean? Like, how would our streets look? How, how, what would, like, what, will this building be here? What would this building look like? I don't Like, what does that even mean? I think our imagination fails us because we don't think on this level nearly enough. I know I don't. So in your life, when it seems like God doesn't care, when it seems like he's not involved, when he is silent, it doesn't mean he's not at work. So let's not draw God up short because our imagination is lacking. If we develop a holy imagination, that will work its way into the more difficult parts of our lives. And uh, that will give us hope regardless of the chaos around us. There's so many parts of our lives where like, I don't believe God's gonna ever work here. And so we've given up long ago. If this is true, if what Jesus is saying is true, there's nothing that is outside his reach. Jesus will not let us sink. And as we read bad thing after bad thing, the way that Jesus talks in Mark 13, he doesn't promise that we won't be in trouble. He doesn't promise that we won't die. He doesn't promise an easy way, but he does enable us to endure. I mean, why would he be talking about all these things if we knew we were just gonna die and like kind of like not be around him anyway? The mere fact that Jesus himself, our king, is encouraging us tells us that he gives us the endurance that we need. And so how does he do that? Well, it's this amazing thing. And the power of the risen Lord, the one who enables his people to endure, he sends his spirit. So when in life we face more than we can handle, which I think all of us will, I mean, God is always gonna give us more things that we can handle on our own, but not anything more than uh, he can handle through his spirit. We know we can endure because of his spirit. And more than just endure, when those who are powerful abuse their power over us because of faith, the spirit uses like a jujitsu move. I think jujitsu, I'm gonna, someone will correct me, please, um, is when you use your, like the opponent's momentum against themselves. So someone goes in for a punch and you kind of like use their momentum and take them down. I think that's what happens there. Um, let's just say that's what happens there. Uh, verse 11 says this, when you're arrested, you're brought to trial. Do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So when you're like, could there be any horrible, like worse, difficult, like you are being arrested for your faith and brought in, but God's saying, no, you're going to use us to be my witnesses. In verse nine, it says that on account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings to be whipped, to be flogged, to be arrested, to be killed, but as witnesses to them. So even moments of persecution, even moments where the powerful seem to be in power, God is always in control. Moments where the spirit is able to do his work in his power. So we don't need to worry about words. How many of you have had conversations with people or not have conversations with people? Because like, I have no idea what I'm going to say to this person. So I'm just going to not do it. Like, we don't have to rely on our words. The spirit has the words for us. We just have to kind of open our mouths and hopefully we'll make an intelligible sentence. We don't need to worry about these words. Jesus, the spirit's words are Jesus's words. Like they are, he's God. 
They last through any kind of chaos we can imagine. I mean, Jesus says, the world will pass away, but my words will remain. Those are the kind of words that the Spirit gives us. So we don't need to worry full stop. The Spirit speaks through us. So now we've kind of ventured into the territory of, of what we do. So uh, what else shall we do? Well, one, we can speak because the words will come. We have to speak. In moments of persecution, we can endure because the Spirit is present in us. The same power of the Son of Man who's coming in glory, that same thing is within us. So instead of thinking how poor we have it when we're ridiculed for our faith, really the pity goes the opposite way. Pity that comes from compassion, not, not, like, not like a prideful pity, but like a compassionate kind of merciful um, uh, emotion. That should come to the people who feel like they know the way, they're, they're lost. People who think they have the power, but they don't. The people who think they're seeing, but are blind. How sad for them it must be. This is why we pray, right? What do we have to endure? Like a few jokes? Not always being included? Oh, that is nothing in comparison with the Son of Man coming in the clouds and power and glory. Nothing. Who are the ones to be pitied, really? We are already victorious, and we didn't have to work for it. So we speak because the power of the Spirit is at work within us, and He has things to say. Let's not muzzle the Spirit because we feel awkward. But also, we watch. There's another similar word in here. Um, Watching, being on guard, starting in verse 33. Uh, Jesus says, be on guard, be alert. You do not know uh, when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house. He puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So what does this mean what, what does this metaphor mean for us? Because obviously Jesus is speaking metaphorically. What does it mean for us to watch, to be on guard, to be alert, to stay awake? All these words that Jesus uses here. Well, I think of first importance for Jesus are his words, because they're never going to pass away. So we need to be steeped into, in Jesus' words ourselves. He himself said they will never pass away. So when are we most likely to miss out on Jesus' life-giving words? Well, when things go busy or when things go wrong. That's when we kind of give up on either our own personal reading or connecting with others, or we say, oh, I'm too busy, so I, I can't come and you know, worship together with people. And sometimes I get it. Life is going to get busy, and it's not about being here. It's about being fed, and it's difficult for that to happen unless you're here. So when things go busy, when things go wrong, that's when we forget about Jesus. But in the times of greatest chaos, either with busyness or trials or whatever we might experience, Jesus says his words are never going to wear out. They're not going to go away. They will always be applicable. They'll always be a source of life. They'll always help us reorient our busy lives towards him and always help us endure in chaos. Jesus' words help keep us anchored. Jesus' words help keep us afloat. Without him, we drift. So that means in times of greatest chaos, when we're really, really busy, we need to press into him more. It's difficult though, right? We're not going to be perfect in it. I get that. Without it though, our lives are going to lose their meaning. It's better to have difficult, more meaningful lives than easy, less meaningful lives. Now, maybe we're concerned about like the stuff we have new Sunday set up. Maybe we're concerned about that as a church. As a church, maybe we have a concern about the Christmas events coming up in the not too distant future. Um, maybe we're concerned about kind of growing in number. I mean, all these are good concerns. All of them are worth our time, worth our prayers. And you have all been doing amazing in them and setting it up and, and working together in this. But if we aren't in God's word daily, 
If we aren't engaging with the Spirit through prayer in our lives, we basically live like everyone else, just maybe a little bit different on Sunday for a few hours. That's basically like empty religion. We're going to miss it. We must watch. This could mean getting up earlier, staying awake later, in which case stay awake is a literal kind of command from Jesus. How many people fall asleep praying all the time, reading the Bible like, oh, where was I? I don't know. Um, It might mean like, you know, one less show on Netflix or whatever the thing might be. But we have to make sure this is of first importance in our lives. Otherwise, everything else loses its meaning. And I think through this, we have to be steeped. We have to be surrounded by it, taken over by it. I mean, this is the perfect time of year for tea. Like tea was made for this kind of weather, I think. You just, if you're out on a walk, especially if it's a little bit rainy, um, you just, you, it's, if you have a fire in your house, like that's amazing. And then we don't, but other cool people do. Um, and then you have like that nice cup of tea and just like warm your whole body somehow around this like small little mug. Um, the Christian life isn't hot water with a tea bag on the side. It's tea that's been steeped in the water. And you steep that tea for as long as you have to in order to make it delicious and amazing as it's meant to be. Sometimes it's going to be longer than other times. We can't expect any kind of renewal in others if we aren't concerned with renewal in ourselves. We can't expect Redeemer to grow. We shouldn't expect Redeemer to grow. In fact, we shouldn't even want Redeemer to grow if we ourselves aren't steeped. Because if we grow, how are we going to grow? We're going to grow by people who like coming to events. Like, I guess that's okay, but that's not really what we want. We want people who are going to grow in their love for Jesus. And that needs to be happening in our lives before it happens in others. So we must watch because it's so easy to drift. We must stay awake because if we don't, we start sinking. We must be steeped. And this is something that we don't do ourselves. We have to do that with others. It's always all these yous that we see in, in chapter 13, they're all plural. They're not you singular. These are all the people of God working together. So thankfully, we have the Spirit in us working to this end. We have the Father who smiles upon us, is happy to invite us into his family. And we have the Son, the King, who's in charge of this world now, and will bring a happy ending for us. Like this is a hope we get to look forward to. We may not experience that kind of hope in our lives, even until we die. But that is a hope that we get to look forward to, even after death. And though there are many claims, there's only one king. And this king isn't some kind of cheap knockoff. He has all the power. He doesn't use it to destroy others. He uses it to bring us life. This king will not persecute us. He's not going to ground us down. He lifts us up. This king will not betray us, though we will betray him. This king is the only one who can bring us to life. This king sends a spirit who supernaturally empowers us to not buckle under the pressures of a persecuted life. So when Jesus comes, he sees all these cheap knockoffs, and though he's patient now, justice is going to come. Things will be set right. Those who abuse their power to keep others down, the king is coming in great power and glory. Those who claim their way is the way to enlightenment, but deny the God who actually gives it, the king is coming in great power and glory. Those who have persecuted God's people, we don't take revenge because the king is coming in great power and glory. So us, today, the church does not experience great power and glory in the way the world would define it. We don't have great power, which is okay, because it's not ours, it's Jesus's. We don't have great glory, and that's okay. It's not ours, it's Jesus's. It's all about the king. He gathers his people in love and brings justice to those who lead others astray. Love and justice, two things that are sometimes uh, disparate, not really connected to each other. They're found in Jesus' mission when he returns because love and justice have always been a part of his mission. When Jesus went to the cross, he went in love. He knew we'd be easily misled. He knew we couldn't work to get to him, so he died to win us back. 
and in his death, he took on all our desires to be led some other way. He took all that upon himself and put them to death. And that's why Jesus had to die. He had to die because he had to put to death everything else that would cause us to sink. The only way Jesus can keep you anchored and afloat is because he went to the cross for you. And so when we come to the table, that's what we get to remember. The table is a symbol of Jesus's love and justice because this table is a symbol of the cross where love and justice meet. And the bread symbolizes Jesus's body that was broken for us. And the cup symbolizes Jesus's blood that was poured out so that we might experience new life. And where he drank the wrath, the punishment, what we get to drink, we get to remember as we come up here to eat and drink, is we get to um, eat and drink the life that he gives us. So on the cross was this great exchange. Jesus gets our punishment, we get the Father's love. It's amazing. That's what we get to uh, embrace and, and live out and remember as we come to God's table. If you haven't yet trusted in Jesus in the way that we've been talking about, please don't come up. But if you have, and maybe you're part of Redeemer, maybe you're not, um, that doesn't really matter because Jesus welcomes you to this table regardless if you're a member or not. Um, As you come up, uh, we'll sing, we'll take a piece of bread, we'll dip it in there. And as we come up, we come to Jesus' table as a new creation as what, how Jesus is, is, is um, describing us here. People being newly created in Jesus means we don't follow these other paths that are offered to us. We're on our guard. We, we watch our lives to make sure we're on his path. And when we realize that we're not on his path, we ask him to forgive us. And maybe th- this morning, it's a, more of a, a walk of repentance and asking Jesus to continue to do his work in you. He's never gonna give up on you. He's always gonna be working on you. That's why we can always bring our lives to him. And we get to lean on the Holy Spirit in us to guide us, to keep us, to empower us, allows us to thrive in these kind of chaotic circumstances. Jesus is our anchor, and he's the one who keeps us afloat. Let's pray to him.